there are people, and, and I, I'm not um, sneering at them, there are people uh, who, who seriously claim that an octopus is conscious. An octopus's brain is nothing like yours and mine. Mm. Uh, but, you know, they, 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 their behavior, they certainly can learn and solve novel problems. And, you know, it's, it's not at all inconceivable uh, that, that, that uh, an octopus is conscious. But I just wouldn't know how to go, how to begin to go about. Uh, we have to use our own brains as a kind of starting point because we know, as I said at the beginning, the only thing that you know is conscious, no, for sure, is you. And you're a human. So, you know, go from there. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Chatter. Before we get started, I just have a few quick messages. First off, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. It's the best way that you can help us grow. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It's going to help us rank higher and get more and more views and therefore bigger and better guests. Links for everything will be in the description below. So please enjoy the podcast. Okay, so hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today I am absolutely delighted to be joined by Mark Soms, uh, the author of The Hidden Spring, uh, a journey to the source of consciousness, which has been, yeah, blowing my mind for about the past week. So uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, no problem. Um, it's, uh, yeah, as I, as I mentioned before we started, your, uh, your book was really making my brain hurt, but I, I learned so many, so many things and it's filled with so many fascinating anecdotes. Um Particular, I particularly enjoyed uh, your first day um, in the the psychiatric hospital, and I can't remember where it was, but where you fainted, and the last thought you had was, um, "Oh well, I'll end up as a patient here," <laughs> which really made me chuckle. But um, so the the first question I wanted to to ask you was um, one of the themes that sort of seems to pervade the book um, is that this idea that that mainstream um, neuropsychology or psychology or just the, the the study of the human brain and the ideas of, of consciousness have been so been been quite ready to dismiss or not take into consideration uh feelings and and subjectivity and and the the, the individual experience in the way that perhaps you think they should have um and it seems like you well you make a very good case for it in the book um, so, so why do you think it was that they were unwilling to tackle those questions? Uh, when you say, why do I think it was that they were unwilling? I must tell you that there's still a residue of that. Um, it, was, it was really much worse uh, in the, uh, the period when I trained, um, which was, you know, a, a sort of 70s and 80s uh, of last century. Um, where there was still a strong uh, behaviorist um, a grip on the field, but uh, they they haven't uh, all disappeared. They've they've kind of uh, uh, reinvented themselves, but that prejudice remains, and and for a very good reason. Um, science is of course empirical, uh, and empiricism means. Uh, based on evidence derived from the senses. 
you know, what you have perceived objectively uh, is what's there. Uh, the problem with the mind is it's not an object. Uh, you, you can't perceive it uh, externally. Uh, you can only perceive your own. I mean, literally, each of us can only ever directly observe our own minds. Um, that's because the mind is, 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 is yours. It's subjective. Um, that presents a huge problem for science. As, uh, the, the, the way in which we proceed you know, is we say, you know, when I do this, I see that. Uh, can you see? Look, there it is. Um, and that's what we mean by objectivity. We can all agree on the observation. Um, ideally, we then want to be able to you know, measure what we're seeing and you know, etc. But uh, it's in the nature uh, of mental states that you can do none of those things. So um, that's the dilemma. You know, how do you do science? In other words, how do you empirically study uh, something which cannot be objectified? Um, if I say to you, you know, I've, I've, I've made this artificial, I've worked out the um, mechanisms of consciousness so um, absolutely that I can, now, I can now produce it. Look, you know, I've, I've put together this machine and see, now it's conscious. Uh, how do you... <laughs> How do you demonstrate that? You just can't. Um, and that's a kind of science fiction uh, 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 caricature, what I've just said. But, you know, the same applies to the brain when you say, look, there, can you see? Uh, there's consciousness. Uh, and I have faced that problem very uh, directly, for example, with patients uh, in whom uh, I have good reason to believe they're conscious. Um, I, I, I present those patients to my colleagues and they say, how do you know? You can't know. Um, and the problem is I can't even know, Josh, that you're conscious. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I can't know for sure. I can't observe your consciousness. Mm. So that's the problem. And, and uh, you know, you've got to, my starting point is, uh, well, I know from my own experience that conscious experience exists. Uh, it's therefore something uh, real. Uh, it's part of nature. Uh, and we have to find a way of accommodating it in science. Uh, you can't just leave out a part of nature because it's difficult to study it. Hmm. Um, and and that's, that's what we did uh, in, the, in, the, in the behaviorist times. Um, it wasn't, it's actually worse than I'm saying. It wasn't only that uh, the... Uh, mainstream of mental science those days said, you can't study it. You know, you can't make claims about it. It's not accessible to observation. Uh, therefore, you shouldn't study it. They went further than that and said, it doesn't exist. You know, if you can't see it, it doesn't exist. That's what the behaviorists said. And, and uh, uh, you know, the only that the mind, uh, ideas, concepts like feelings, they called them theoretical fictions. So, you know, that's how bad it was then. There are very few people uh, in the mainstream of science now who will say it doesn't exist. But they, you still have a very hard time uh, getting uh, colleagues to accept subjective data, in other words, subjective reports, as acceptable data. Um, they, they much prefer that you find some objective correlate, some physiological thing that goes along with the 
subjective thing and 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 you point to that physiological thing mm. and uh, that's what's given rise to what philosophers call the hard problem of consciousness they say but how does that physiological thing become the subjective thing mm. um, you know it's it's all very well to to correlate to say that alongside the subjective thing there is this objective thing mm. and then they say yeah but then how does the objective thing become how does it cause the subjective thing that is the number one problem of mental science in my view that what i've just said now explaining how the subjective states uh, emerge from 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 things which are not in themselves subjective things which uh, things which can be objectively studied mm. and it's a it's a it's a hard job for the reason that i've just summarized yeah, well, I mean, you take a—you've spent your whole career on it, so I, I, I'm sure it's not a simple problem. <laughs> so one of the things that was was really stunning to me while I was reading the book, and something that really, yeah, I had to think a lot about it, was that this idea that essentially what you're saying here—that the there may be like biological unconscious drives underlying some of our underlying a lot of our actions. But it's that recognition of when they move from being unconscious to something that we choose to act on. And that 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 moment where I, I sat and thought about that for so long, um, I was like, I was on the train actually um, in, in London. I was just sitting there being like, so what is what is trying to make me like stand up or get off this train or go and get a glass of water? And, and it took me... I still quite haven't quite grasped my head around it, but um, the thing that that really uh, blew my mind actually was this. I had to look the word up because I couldn't remember how to pronounce it here. The the essentially the the children that you were describing the story where they were born without a cortex. So the ooh, hydra ah hydranencephalic. It's hydran hydranencephalic hydranencephalic. There you go. I'll let you say it. Yeah. Um, so I, I was I was blown away by this and, and do you think that the the implication of, of this and then a lot of the things you go on like later in the book to to, to discuss about the the root of a of consciousness is do you think that that central really ancient brain stem is 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 that where all of all of consciousness is rooted do, do you think that there's anything added to it by by the by the yeah the was it the, the cortex on top rather than being yeah is 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 the cortex even necessary for consciousness so um the the, the answer is uh, that it's not necessary for consciousness the cortex uh, but that it certainly does add something so uh, when you say you know it, it does it even do anything at all as far as consciousness is concerned? The answer is yes, it does a hell of a lot. Um, but the crucial thing is, uh, let me just spell it out for people who are not familiar with these uh, anatomical concepts, you know, that the cortex, uh, which is the, the, when most people picture the brain, you know, they, they see in their mind's eye this sort of convoluted, uh, curly-whirly big thing. Uh, that's the cortex. Uh, underneath that, uh, the, uh, joining the the brain, the, the cortex to the to the spinal cord, there's a stem, a bit like the sort of it's a bit like the stamen of a flower. The petals are what we 
you know, uh, what attracts our attention, but there's this green bit that connects it to the stem. And um, in the brain, uh, there's a bit like that. And, and we call it the brain stem. And uh, it's very small uh, by comparison with the cortex. And it's very primitive, uh, by, by which I mean, it's very ancient in evolutionary terms. And we share that same structure with all vertebrates. So that means the brain stem in you and me uh, is basically the same as it is in fishes. Um, although ours is bigger, uh, it's, it's got the same design. It's got the same component parts and it does the same thing. So we, we always believed, and I mean, since we even had brain science, you know, the, 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 the British empiricist philosophers, Hume and Locke, uh, they had the commonsensical notion that um, consciousness uh, is derived from what we perceive from our senses. Uh, you know, because if you look at your conscious experience right now, uh, what you're experiencing is visual things and auditory things and so on. So, you know, consciousness, the raw ingredients of it seems to be, uh, so the raw ingredients seem to be the, the five qualities of our senses. Then when uh, we started to uh, map out how the brain works, uh, mainly in the 18th, 19th century that we started to make real progress, uh, that, that's, that idea was just sort of transplanted onto the brain and we traced from the sensory organs, like from the eye, trace the nerve, see where it goes to, from the ear, trace the nerve, see where it goes to, and it all goes to the cortex. Um, and the British empiricist philosophers also believe that mental life is basically impressions left from these sensory inputs, uh, which are like memory traces, and then we associate the memory traces. Um, and the cortex seems to have everything to do with memory you know, with the retention of past experiences. So it was reasonable enough that they, that they thought the cortex is where, where, you know, all of this conscious mental activity occurs. And if you then damage, obviously you can't do it deliberately, but if by dint of disease, um, the, the, the cortex that the optic nerve projects to is damaged, the patient goes blind. Uh, and if the, you know, the, the auditory nerve as a, a, a endpoint in the cortex is damaged, the patient goes deaf. So, you know, all of the evidence was pointed to the conclusion that that's where the consciousness comes from. Now, uh, the, the, this the, the, the was therefore very surprising uh, when in the, in, the, in the late 1940s, um, some scientists in the States named Magoon and Maruzzi uh, discovered that if you damage just a very small area of the brain stem, remember that primitive part, just a small area, I mean, the size of a match head, uh, you damage that and, and, and the lights go out, the patient is, is, is in a coma. So they didn't know what to make of that uh, because that had nothing to do with senses. You know, it's something from deep within the brain. Uh, you damage this deep core of the brain and then all consciousness disappears. So they, they had the idea that it's a sort of power supply. You know, it's like a television set. Uh, of course, it needs to be plugged in. That doesn't mean that the, the real action is happening you know, at the power source. Um, so they retained the idea that, that consciousness is actually something that the cortex does, the equivalent of the television set, but that it has to have this power supply from the brainstem. Mm. And, and that's what we gradually realized was wrong. Uh, in the in the 1990s uh, through to the present day, 
evidence has accumulated uh, that th that's not just a power supply. Uh, so the evidence is, I'll, I'll take it, you very quickly through it. In, in children, the hydranencephalic children you refer to, they're born with no cortex. That's basically what that condition boils down to. Uh, so if the cortex is where the consciousness is, um, then those kids should be in a coma, but they're not. Mm. I mean, at the very least, they should be in what we call a vegetative state, which is where all your autonomic functions uh, are okay, including the sleep-waking cycle is there, you know, but there's no responsivity. There's no, you don't react to events. It's also called non-responsive wakefulness. So that's what you would expect, but those kids are not non-responsive. They're they're very responsive. So they wake up in the morning, they go to sleep at night. In that sense, they're conscious. But much more tellingly, they are responsive emotionally. If you go like that, they get a fright, you know, and if you tickle them, they giggle. And if you frust if you if you de deprive them of something they want, they arch their backs and go, ah, ah, you know, and complain. Mm. Uh, and and these emotional reactions are, are always situationally appropriate. So the, the, the emotional response you would expect uh, from a situation like pain, you know, you, you cause pain, the, the child winces. And so they look as if they're conscious. That, that was a big surprise. And now remember that the brain stem, if you damage that, all the lights go out. So, so the, this led to the idea that uh, the, the, what's, what's in the brain stem is not just a power supply, although it seems to be necessary for all other forms of consciousness, uh, although it is in that sense the power supply, it actually has content and quality. Uh, it, 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 has, it has feeling. Um, it has pleasurable and unpleasurable feelings of various kinds. The problem is those kids can't speak, which takes us back to where we started our conversation. You know, so my colleagues say to me, well, how do you know they're conscious? You know, and there we have that problem. It looks as if they're conscious, but how do you know? You can't point to it and say, look there, there it is. Um, so the only thing we can do uh, is uh, get around the limitations uh, of that method. The, that method of demonstrating it is these are kids who've got no cortex. They look as if they have feelings. Um, but, you know, you can't be sure. So you've got to use other methods. So what we did is we stimulate, when I say we, I mean, my discipline, you know, my colleagues, uh, I mean, I've been, I'm involved in deep brain stimulation studies, but I didn't make the decisive observations. Uh, they, they were made by others uh, that you stimulate the brain stem, those, those, that very primitive part of the brain in patients who have got a cortex, you electrically stimulate it. And, and, and the prediction is that should generate feelings. You know, if the feelings are actually generated there, then they should be able to say, yes, that makes me feel sad. That makes me feel pain. That makes me feel fear. And that is exactly what they do. Uh, you stimulate these, these same primitive structures which, which uh, are intact in those kids and which, when damaged, make the lights go out. Uh, you stimulate them in normal people. Uh, it, in other words, people who've got cortex and can report on their mental states. And they say they're feeling these intense feelings and 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 you can predict stimulation here will cause that feeling stimulation there will cause the other one and that doesn't happen if you stimulate the cortex um you know and then people might say well you know it's just stimulating the power source which is actually really doing something to the cortex 
So we used another method. It's called positron emission tomography, uh, which is a kind of brain scan, which scans which parts of the brain are active uh, at a particular moment in time. So we took people who were in intense emotional states, people who were in states of gripped by fear or rage or depression, sadness uh, or joy. And in all of them, uh, where the action was metabolically in the brain, where the really active part of the brain was, was again, the brain stem, those very same primitive structures. So it's by this sort of sequence of observations that we've been led to the conclusion that the source of consciousness, you know, the power supply, um, which everyone agrees the power supply is in the brainstem, we've been led to conclude that that power supply is a very basic form of consciousness that feels like something, you know, that has, that has quality, mm. so that there is something it is like to be that child uh, who has no cortex. Mm. And uh, so if by consciousness you mean feels like something, you know, that it, it, there is an experience there, uh, then all you need is a brainstem. That's the conclusion that I'm driven to. I don't see how we can conclude anything else. But the, that basic feeling then activates the cortex, which enables you to have much more complicated thoughts about your feelings. Uh, and, and, and as it happens, that seems to be the main function of the cortex is to sort of the feelings are demands on you. You know, this feels bad. The cortex's job is, well, what are you going to do about it? You know, well, let me, let me think. Uh, let, let me, let me uh, try something out and see if it works or not. If it does work, you lay down a memory. Okay, that's, that's how you do this. That's how you, that's how you get rid of this problem. Uh, that's how you manage this need. Uh, our needs uh, are announced to us in the forms of feelings. So I believe um, the most basic forms of consciousness are things like hunger, you know, and sleepiness uh, and pain. These raw, basic states of mind, um, which you don't need to know anything about. You don't need to have any theories about them. You you just feel them, uh, and you immediately uh, um, respond to them. Mm. Uh, 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 that, the, the cortical part elaborates it all, and and uh, I'm glad I've got a cortex. I mean, don't, don't <laughs> let's demean the cortex, but it's not the source. It's not the source of consciousness. Mm. Okay, so um, there's there's like a couple of questions that I kind of have um, here that are they're sort of rolled into one, um, and it just sort of they all seem to kind of slide together just based on what you've said already. So I do apologize um, for for yourself and for people listening if this is a bit muddled, um, especially just because um, I'm used to talking about politics and economics as much as I love um, neuroscience and discussions about consciousness and all these things. It's not my like absolute like wheelhouse, so it, sometimes I yeah the words might get a bit uh, fumbled. But anyway, so uh, basically, uh, the first question I have is, is the do do the children who have no cortex then they have no memory as such, and then I th like leading from that does that mean that the the memory isn't key to consciousness? That's not like the, the that's not the the basis of it and the i think it is there's a you said in the book that there's like that that little um mesh that connects to the brain stem that's uh 525 million years old um 
and that is, so my, my question is basically like is is consciousness that old or is that just like where it was first possible from um and then is memory the thing that sets humans consciousness apart from say the rest of the animal world if that's even the case like i'm, I'm not suggesting that humans are definitely like like more conscious but yeah C could you try and tackle that for me <laughs> yeah yeah sure um so so that that is um a, a sort of series of questions that interdigitate with each other L let me start by saying those kids they cannot remember consciously they can never they can never retrieve a memory image in fact worse than that they can never generate an image even here and now uh, because that's what cortex does it generates images uh, and then it retains those uh, patterns and then you can reactivate those patterns and that's what memory is in the form that we remember it but the whole of learning uh, does not um, coincide with that kind of remembering um, so those kids don't have that, full stop, uh, they don't. Uh, but then uh, underneath the cortex, there are structures which we call the basal ganglia, uh, subcortical nuclei. They're also capable of learning. Um, but th that kind of learning is sort of like learning a skill, you know, like how to walk, um, how to move and grasp something, um, how to, at a higher level, sort of how to ride a bicycle, drive a car, play the piano, and so on. You don't have images in your mind remembering all your lessons. You know, you just, you just can do it. You're, 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 you just have motor patterns that run themselves. Um, and the, the, these kids, most of them can learn like that. In other words, that they can they can they they can acquire simple skills and simple habits without necessarily being able to remember how they acquired them. They just they just do acquire them. Mm. I say some of them because it depends. Some of them have no cortex. Some of them have no cortex and no basal ganglia. The ones who have no basal ganglia they don't learn at all, uh, but they still have feelings. Now, before I talk to you about um, the animal stuff that you asked about and the evolutionary stuff, I, I want to go back to what you said um, about that sort of magical transition from from automatic autonomic functioning to choice, you know, to 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 voluntary action. Mm -hmm. um, and and I'd like to use the example of respiratory control. We all breathe automatically. Uh, you know, you don't have to t t uh, picture. Oh, I need to breathe and uh, out in out. You know, you don't think about it at all. Your 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 body just does it. And when I say your body just does it, what what I mean is your brain just does it uh, without any consciousness. It's an automatic uh, reflex uh, governed by the brain, uh, and that serves you perfectly well until you move into a situation where that kind of automatic reflex um, doesn't do its job. So imagine you're now in a carbon dioxide-filled room. Uh, this is an unexpected situation. It's not what your respiratory system is designed for, uh, and you can't get enough oxygen. So now you have to make choices uh, about where do I go? What do I do? Do I go up? Do I go down? Do I go through that door? Do I go through this door? How do you know uh, which is the right way to go? You have no basis for knowing because... You've never been in a burning building before, you know, let alone this particular one. And so now your need for oxygen uh, becomes conscious. 
that you, you feel this unpleasant thing we call air hunger or, or suffocation alarm. Uh, and as you move around, uh, you, some, some of your choices uh, will lead to increased oxygen. Some will lead to decreased oxygen. How do you know it feels better or it feels worse? That's the function of consciousness or in this most basic form that we're talking about now. The form that those kids, even the ones who can't remember anything, uh, they would have that feeling, <laughs> can't breathe. You know, they don't know what that means. They just know it's not nice. Uh, and they know that it's nice uh, to be able to breathe again. So that's how that part of our brains works. So that you, you make your choices according to what feels better and you avoid what feels worse and you approach what feels better. And in this way, you save your life. You know, if you, had, if you just had a reflex uh, which says, well, just breathe, you know, it wouldn't work. You need now to make choices about where to go in order to find the oxygen. And the feeling tells you uh, the, the good or bad feeling uh, of, of, of uh, uh, getting enough oxygen or not tells you whether you've made the right choices or not. Now, add to that uh, the capacity for learning so that the next time you find yourself in a situation like that, you've learned you know, when you're in a burning building, go downstairs, not upstairs. You know, the oxygen is down, not up. Mm. That's what I learned last time. So I'm using a, a kind of a, a kind of an extreme example, but you know, generalize from that. Uh, that's what learning adds. So you don't need learning or memory in order to feel something, uh, but uh, it adds something. Uh, the feeling, actually, the feeling your way through the problem, is how you learn. Uh, so that you learn from experience. The operative word is experience. You learn from, we call it the law of affect. You, know? uh, you avoid what feels bad and you approach what's, what feels good and you predict on the basis of what happened last time, what you're going to do next time. That's the whole function of memory. So, so, so uh, that's the place of memory in relation to consciousness. And uh, so that comes back to your question about the evolution of all of it. Um, so we know which parts of our brains, the brain stem, uh, that the deep uh, reticular activating system within it is where these feelings are generated. Uh, so we have every reason to believe that any other creature that has the same structures, regardless of whether they're able to learn or not, and regardless of whether they're able to cognitively elaborate or not, uh, we have reason to believe, uh, because it applies in our case, uh, the, the, that's a good basis for assuming the same applies in their case. And then you test your hypothesis by saying, well, I hypothesize, I know that in human beings, if you stimulate this part of the brainstem, they hate it. And if you stimulate this part, you know, it's orgasmically delightful. Uh, let's see whether the, whether the animals like that they want this stimulation or they avoid this stimulation. And every time we've done that experiment, I mean, every time we've done that experiment, our, our, con our, our prediction is confirmed. The animals behave in the way that we would expect based on what those structures do in our own case. They do the same thing in the case of those animals. So on that basis, we believe that as long as you've got a brain stem with the reticular activating system inside of it, then you can have feelings. That's what, that's what emerged 525 million years ago. That's when the first vertebrates, uh, I was going to say walked on the surface of the earth, but really actually slithered on the surface of the earth. Um, and uh, 
So you know, it goes against our 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 intuition. Uh, but but I I uh, believe the evidence uh, leads to the conclusion uh, that every vertebrate, in other words, every animal that has a brainstem with a reticular activating system, has feelings. Uh, now. Um, as you go uh, to more complex creatures, so the capacity to learn um, from experience uh, in, in the way that I've just described applies. Um, in other words, as long as they've got basal ganglia as, as the subcortical memory systems, they learn. Uh, and then over and above that, those that have got cortex, which is mammals, uh, mammals have cortex. Um, uh, 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 not only primates, all mammals, you know, so, so dogs and cats and, and, and mice, uh, you know, and squirrels uh, and so on. <laughs> and, and of course, elephants and dolphins and whales and, you know, all of us mammals. Um, there's, there's every reason to believe that they don't only uh, learn, but they, they are able to replay, uh, you know, to be able to reactivate the actual uh, uh, images um, consciously. All of that stuff comes later. Now, so, you know, in, a, in all of this roundabout way, I've gotten, I think, to the nub of your question, you know, which is what is uniquely human uh, about human consciousness? Well, it is not that we feel because fishes feel, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, th th that's the, what I was basically saying earlier. I'm sorry to say it, but fishes feel. Um, and uh, it's not that we can learn uh, you know, you don't have to consciously learn. Uh, you know, many, many, many creatures learn. Uh, we can demonstrate it. You can see they learn. You can show that they learn. That doesn't mean that they are actually able to replay little movies in their heads about, you know, what they've just done. Uh, but that all mammals can do. Uh, even rats can do that. You know, so that's not what it makes us unique either. It's not that we are able to replay the experience in our mind's eye. Uh, and there's lots of good evidence that even rats can do that. Although they have just a smidgen of cortex. Animals like whales and elephants, I mean, you know, their capacity in this regard is fantastic. Um, so what is it that makes us unique? It's none of those things. It's language. It's language. Um, mm -hmm. We, we uh, and, and, you know, it's not as if other, uh, I mean, whales have a sort of a language. Dolphins have a sort of a language. Primates have a sort of a language. Elephants too, but you know they're very basic, simple communicative schemes. What we have is this highly abstracted capacity for symbolic, for for re -rep I mean, like they're things that you could not even think without language. Like, like imagine something like but, you know, yes, but uh, uh, how do you how do you think mm -hmm. but except <laughs> in words? You know, you, the, the, the very how about not? You know, you, how, how do you convey not? It, it, it's not true uh, without without an abstract symbolic system, uh, you know, like like language. Let alone the precision that allows. I mean, think of the difference between um, probably, possibly, potentially. You know, these are things. When I say those things, you know immediately what I mean. Mm. Uh, you can't have such ideas without without language. Language is the vehicle for a kind of a symbolic, um, uh, reflective, uh, uh, abstract way of thinking. Uh, that I think that's where we come into our own. Um, so I'm not denying that we humans have unique capacities. And I say again, I'm very glad to have them. Uh, that's also why we're able to have this conversation now, you and me.
but we mustn't confuse that with consciousness itself. We mustn't take our human version of consciousness as the sort of uh, prototype. You know, why? Why, why is our consciousness uh, what we should use as, uh, as the defining uh, type of consciousness? This is the most elaborated, most complex form of consciousness that exists on Earth. Um, and, you know, you, if you're wanting to get to the essence of something, uh, you don't start with the most complicated, elaborated version of it. You, know, you get down to the most basic version of it. Consciousness just is the capacity to feel like something, you know, to actually have a qualitative, subjective, experiential, phenomenal state mm. and feelings are all you need in order to be able to have that. That's the most basic form of consciousness. And I'm focusing on that because I'm wanting to understand, you know, how does it come about? How, how is this, how does this emerge from non-conscious mechanisms? You know, that is truly a, a fantastically interesting uh, scientific question. Mm. Yeah. I'm going to come back to that question in just a second, but um, something has just sort of popped into my head here about when you mentioned that language is the the source of what sets humans apart, basically. Um, so I spent so last year I I sort of worked my way through um, Jordan Peterson's uh, lecture series on the the psychological significance of the early books of the Bible. Um, so I think he, yeah, he was just doing Genesis. So I think I've watched it twice now and I'm still trying to digest some of the things he says. But some of the themes that 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 really stick stick with me uh, is this idea that the the ancient the people who were who were telling these stories over and over that they either consciously <laughs> hilarious given our subject matter or unconsciously um understood a lot of the a lot of the the really deep sort of philosophical and and psychological questions that that we we still struggle with today and i i was just curious as to whether you thought that the yeah that that those ancient people maybe not beat you to it but had a grasp of what you were trying to say here when they talked about um you know god speaking the 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 universe into existence you, do, do you know what i mean Yes, yes, you're referring to in the beginning was the word. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, uh, you see, uh, I, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I think that's precisely the problem. Uh, why do we think that the world as we experience it, in other words, that we, we can actually conceptualize, we can actually think God created the universe and, it, and, and somehow the word you know, brings this about. You know, th th this way of this type of consciousness is uniquely human. But think about it. What are they actually claiming? They're not claiming that the universe, as we humans experience it, came about uh, by dint of the word. Uh, they're claiming the universe in itself came about by dint of the word. Mm. And I don't agree with that. I think that the universe came into existence long before words, uh, long before living things, <laughs> you know, uh, mm therefore long before consciousness even in its most primitive form yeah. uh, i believe there was a universe a big bang long 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 before life emerged um mm. and there was life long 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 before consciousness emerged and there was consciousness long 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 before language emerged and uh, so you know i think that we're starting in the wrong place 
uh, to start with our language-based symbolic type of consciousness. I mean, I grant you, I really do, that it is something special, uh, but it is not synonymous with consciousness itself. Uh, consciousness itself, uh, you know, who's, how could you claim that just the raw feeling of pain when you, when you, when you, when you cut your finger, um, you know, isn't conscious? Mm. It, it, clearly it is, uh, you know, and you don't need any word for it. I mean, we do have a word for it, but you don't, those little kids with no cortex and no possibility of language, they clearly show pain. Uh, and 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 uh, for the reasons that I summarized earlier, clearly feel pain. Mm. So I, I I think it's a hard job for us to do it because of course it's so it's so conventional for us to equate this kind of thing uh, that's this uniquely human kind of uh, thought based reflective abstract you know philosophical sort of consciousness yeah. uh, with with the with the 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 basic elemental form. Mm. Um, and uh, I, it's just it's just not a, a good idea to, to, to go about it that way. So if we want to study human consciousness and what's unique about human consciousness, go for it. You know, it's very, very interesting. But if you're wanting to understand what consciousness actually is, what it's there for, how it evolved, uh, what its most you know, essential mechanisms are, uh, you've got to start with the basic feeling type, mm. the type that evolved at least 525 million years ago, because I say those creatures have the same anatomy as us. And when you stimulate those structures, uh, they do the same thing as you would expect on the basis of our experience. When you damage those structures, you lose those things as you would expect and so on. That doesn't mean that even simpler creatures don't have some even simpler form of consciousness. It's just it becomes guesswork at that point. You know, you don't even know how how to formulate, uh, you know, wh where do you stimulate? Where do you lesion? But, you know, there are people, and, and I, I'm not um, sneering at them. There are people uh, who, who seriously claim that an octopus is conscious. An octopus's brain is nothing like yours and mine. Mm. Uh, but, you know, they, 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 their behavior, they certainly can learn and solve novel problems. And, you know, it's, it's not at all inconceivable uh, that a, that, that, uh, an octopus is conscious, but I just wouldn't know how to go, how to begin to go about. I, we have to use our own brains as a kind of starting point because we know, as I said at the beginning, the only thing that you know is conscious, no, for sure, is you, and you're a human. So you know, go from there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm maybe getting like a little bit muddled in, in what I'm trying to think of. I guess it was like I was trying to say that perhaps they're saying that language was the thing that conceptually allowed us to to ha to see the world created do do you know what i mean but something yes, actually, in that yeah. sense yeah 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 but the, so that just theoretically does that like the 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 use then the the grinding of of language in in some sort of um higher level of of uh, yeah cognition and and consciousness does that mean that that there's a chance that animals with a complex language could have some sort of experiential thing that similar to ourselves or is is that sort of asking the wrong question there um well it's not that you're asking the wrong question it's that you're asking the wrong person the question i don't want <laughs> okay. to pretend i don't want to pretend to be an, an expert on um you know on, on 
minimal language. I know a bit about. I, I know that we're not the only because with 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 sign systems, you know, with communication systems, um, and uh, ours is clearly way more elaborate. We know from the attempts to teach chimpanzees language in the sense that we use language, you know, with a, with not just a large vocabulary but also with the grammar. It's really really. And they are our closest genetic relatives, chimpanzees are. So, you know, um, I know that much, uh, but I'm, I'm, no, I'm no expert uh, uh, on the topic. But I want to add this, though, that language is not merely a, a means of communication. Uh, it, it's actually, especially in relation to what we are talking about, it's much more um, important to, um, to bear in mind that it's a it's a it's a form of thinking, you know. Language enables you to to classify mm. uh, and abstract um, and 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 um, uh, indicate relationships between things which are not concrete things, you know. Like I was saying earlier about but and not and so on. Um, the the it, it enables you to think things which you otherwise would not be able to think. And I think to the point that you were making about Genesis, you know, it then enables you to perceive things which you otherwise wouldn't be able to perceive, things which are not concrete you know, blobs there in front of your eyes. You can perceive things like, um, you know, like um, greed. Mm. You can recognize it. That's greed. Since you're interested in politics, I might use that example. You know? <laughs> That's an example of greed. You know, but greed isn't a, isn't a thing. Uh, but you can recognize it once you've got the concept. Um, yeah, I, I, I better not proceed any further down political roads. <laughs> well, we'll leave it at that anyway. Um, so the, um, but you're right. I, there's there's definitely like a, a whole set of like higher level emotions that that aren't quite definable, like nostalgia or or something like yeah. that. You know, um, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. So um, I wanted to go to go back a little bit then. So we, we talked about um, consciousness as uh, like trying to trying to find ways to 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 measure it essentially in a way. And I just uh, or to, to yeah even describe it as 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 we talked about at the very beginning. Um, do you think that there is some way in which it could be theoretically measured that like science is not capable like is there a is there like a consciousness like wave or field or is is there something there that perhaps it's because it seems like the the behaviorists don't want to address it because in a way there's there's nothing quantifiable there um you know it's not but theoretically could there be something quantifiable that we just don't understand how to measure? Um, well, the th this is a very complicated topic, uh, and I'll, I'll try I'll try to just indicate some of the some of the starting points. Um, for one thing, actually, psychologists do measure it all the time, um, they, but it's just a very rough and ready measurement, you know, like. Um, you say to a patient or to a research participant, you know, uh, does this make you feel good or bad? Um, and rate it, you know, so that neutral is zero. Um, bad is, you know, a little bit bad is minus one. Medium bad is minus two. Very bad is minus three. 
and you know conversely with good is you know a little bit good medium good very good and so there you've got a seven point scale we call it a likert scale and you know there you're you're starting to measure it's it's not it's not uh, very precise but you know i think we have to adapt our methods to the phenomena not the other way around you know you don't say well i don't know how to measure this uh, with a ruler mm. uh, so you know i'm not going to study it you've got to say well it's something subjective so you've got to use subjective measurements um the and that might sound um, a very um, rough and ready so i want to i want to add two points the one is that in medicine we do that all the time you know like in neurology um when you're wanting to measure a patient's reflexes you know their motor reflexes you know say it's or, or their motor power you know we measure it out of out of five we mm -hmm. say it's the patient's got a five or four or three or two or one mm -hmm. uh, when you're measuring um the patient's consciousness by which i mean level of consciousness um we have a thing called the glasgow coma scale it's a 15 point scale you know and you you assign points we do it all the time we use it and these are not unimportant i mean these are matters of life and death when it comes to the glasgow coma scale you know and we and we use it in 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 clinical medicine every day so this kind of measurement so it's not it's not precise um and it's not um you know uh, as as good as we would like but it's 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 serviceable the other thing i wanted to say about that kind of measurement like like it scales like that if you take large enough samples you get extremely reliable findings you know so that you know in this with this sort of stimulus um, the, the 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 human being rates this as unpleasant to the rate of 1.7 you know minus 1.7 Uh, and you you take a large enough sample that's what you'll find it's it's rated as unpleasant to minus 1.7 you know so each one person says well i think it's a this i think it's a that i'll minus 2 minus 1 you know but take enough of them it it it, it you you tend to find something pretty reliable um so even just that sort of thing uh, it does become quantifiable if you don't if you don't have a prejudice against subjective quantification and you don't have a prejudice against all that that means you know and then you follow it through like i was saying uh, with large sample sizes and so on and you follow it through in terms of its practical usefulness in clinical medicine you know these are not things to be sneezed at um, but there's another way of thinking about quantification uh, of consciousness um and that is what i was saying earlier about the physiological correlates mm -hmm. you know um there 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 are all sorts of ways in which we can measure uh, the level of consciousness for example with eeg you know um these are granted the physiological correlates um and and uh, you might say well aren't i being hypocritical a little while ago i was saying you know we don't you know that's not consciousness itself uh, but remember that's what the in in behaviorist times they were saying we must not look to the subjective data we must only look to the objective data and so consciousness ends up being conflated with uh, eeg you know and then you're saying no it's not really the ee the eeg is the only real thing uh, the, the the subjective stuff doesn't really exist that's what the behaviorist said i'm saying uh, well you know we got if if you're willing to take subjective reports as data and you've got objective measures at the same time 
then you can use the objective measures to ground the subjective ones. So, you know, if 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 a hundred people all say at that point, uh, you know, as the stimulus becomes more and more, you, you give a visual stimulus for milliseconds, and then it's more milliseconds, more milliseconds, more milliseconds. At a certain threshold, you know, a hundred people say, "Now I saw it." You know, then then you can start saying, "Okay, you know, a hundred milliseconds is the threshold uh, for." For visual consciousness, and you know, then when you see that hundred millisecond stimulus, when you use that, you can reliably, confidently say, "Okay, I'm using something here, which is a conscious stimulus. Something below that is not. Something above that is." You know, as long as you use both, you tie the two together. I think that you, and that's what the very word neuropsychology implies. You know, neuro and psychology. So you know, the objective and the subjective. The problem is that in the past, psychology didn't. Even in psychology, you couldn't use subjective data, um, and that's what behaviorism was all about. Now we we are quantifying, you know, on that basis of what I just said, that you can tie the subjective things to the objective things. Um, you know, we we are in computational neuroscience now. We have highly precise computational models of what goes on. Uh, in in the conscious mind, um, and there we can have all the precision that we that we cannot have in rough and ready subjective reports. You know where we can make very precise predictions uh, and very precise adjustments uh, of the of the, uh, the 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 model, you know, the computational models that we've produced of the mental processes. But uh, I would be very sad if. What psychology became was computational modeling, you know, rather than the actual study of experience. I just think we 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 need them both, and we and and we we, we you know, they the, they need each other when it comes to the science of the mind. Hmm. So one of the things that the really uh, I've been I've been wondering about ever since. So yeah. That that little bit of the brain that's sort of five hundred twenty-five million years old, and and this this concept that it's it's feelings that are at the very base of of consciousness, and it, I I wonder if that if that means that consciousness itself, in 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 the sense that of 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 what you're what you're looking at, is is that necessary for complex life to emerge in a. a is yeah is yeah yeah that's the question basically. Um, is, yeah, is that, it, well, it really it really depends on what you mean by complex life. I mean, from the point of view of a biologist, um, you know, a single cell is a simple life form. An insect is a complex life form. I'm not sure you have insects in mind uh, when you say yeah. complex life. You know, so they, no. they, 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 that's a that's a very relative term. But what, what but I can, can say insects, is this: Can insects feel? Is that because if we're if like if do, do they have some sort of pain like is there is there something in their their nervous system that allows them to have some early form of that or some basic form? So what I was saying earlier uh, is that we can only know for sure that consciousness exists in us uh, because we are us and consciousness is a subjective thing and so you can only experience your own so you can only know for sure, for certain, that it exists in us. Then the kinds of experiments I was talking about done on human beings, you can report their experience. And if you want to be really brave, you can do them on yourself. 
<laughs> you know, uh, you, 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 you will directly experience, you stimulate this part of the brainstem. That's what, by the way, I have submitted myself to many experiments. Um, I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a jolly good thing to do as a scientist. Mm -hmm. and, uh, it, it, and, and some of them are great fun also. You have some of the most extraordinary experiences. Um, so we know in our case, uh, for sure, uh, what brain structures generate uh, conscious states, these basic feelings, which as I'm saying on the basis of all the evidences, we can take it that these are the most basic forms of consciousness. Then we can study other creatures that have got those same structures. And we can have a reasonable basis for saying, well, you know, I predict it will cause them to behave like this on the basis of what it does with humans. And it always does. As soon as you get outside of the realm of vertebrates, in other words, where the anatomy starts to become, there are no homologs. You can't say, well, this is the equivalent of the human reticular activating system. Mm -hmm. It just becomes very uncertain. So, you know, I would love to say to you, yes, ants feel, or no, ants don't. The, the answer is actually we don't know. Um, but ants have, insects have nervous systems and brains, you know. Um, and th this is my criterion. And I, it comes from what I said to you earlier about the difference between autonomic respiratory control and conscious choice about what should I, where can I find the oxygen? Mm -hmm. um, for me, a, a, a crucial feature uh, is, is the animal capable of, of making choices in an unpredicted environment um, it, where its reflexes fail it? In other words, the ordinary reflexive, uh, uh, automatized, born, built-in, hardwired uh, uh, ways of responding, uh, if those don't cut it, uh, is the animal able to come up with new ways uh, of its own? And then there's the further question of, uh, is it able to learn from that? Uh, and, and if that is your criterion, uh, then I'm afraid it goes even lower than vertebrates, that there are several animals simpler than vertebrates uh, who show the capacity for choice, uh, who, who show, whose, whose behavior is not entirely predictable. Uh, you know, in, in, a, in, in, a, in, a, in an uncertain situation, they come up with their own. Uh, uh, um. Now, it's very, I'm saying that that is the function of consciousness. It enables an animal to do that. Mm. Uh, that is the, the major adapt, the evolutionary adaptation. You no longer, because think of it, if you don't have that, your behavior is random. You know, there's, there's no, how, how do you make a choice unless you have a value system? which determines which one is better and which one is worse. Uh, and feelings seem to be that value system. Feels good, feels bad, which ultimately reflects the deeper value system of all living things, you know, which is survival is good. But not all creatures are able to feel uh, that goodness and badness. Uh, and being able to feel it enables you to make choices beyond the reflexes that you're born with. So for me, that's the that, that, that's the pivotal uh, uh, change. Okay, so you're saying it's essentially um, like about choice, and and as a sort of somewhat as an extension, then creativity. Um, that you because you, yeah. yeah yeah. So so does that mean that? So what 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 then is the is the is this the evolutionary reason for 
consciousness in 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 yeah in your mind is that is that the reason is is the is because it evolved because choice and therefore as an extension creativity to like in whatever basic form that may take allowed animals to adapt and survive yeah you could call it creativity or you could call it flexibility or, or generativity uh, that you're not trapped uh, in in reflex if if all you have is reflexes and the vast majority vast 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 majority of living things all they have is reflexes you know that it's completely predictable you stimulate a sea slug there it will withdraw its you know it, 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 it it's little feeler thing um, you, you can absolutely predict exactly what it's going to do increase the light it will move away you know and so on so so uh, and that's really the vast majority of living things now the, as soon as those creatures move outside of their predictable environments when something happens which is not predicted by evolution you know that you, you've got an inbuilt solution for that problem their behavior is random some of them survive the vast majority of them don't the ones that survive they've now they pass on to the next generation the reflex that happens to be the way to deal with that problem in other words they randomly happen to do the right thing and that disposition then gets selected into the next generation so that way the species survives you know it's the species adapts over generations over millennia the species adjusts to changes uh, as the world becomes uh, you know as as things change and it becomes unpredictable uh, so they have to adjust and adapt to the evolutionary niche and that's how they do it if you have the capacity for feeling you can make the choices yourself in your own lifetime uh, you know that is a huge leap uh, you don't have to die <laughs> the, the majority of your generation doesn't have to die you know you can all more or less uh, you know survive uh, just by feeling your way through the problem so it is an enormous uh, an enormous uh, leap so just to be clear about what i'm speaking about all living things have needs that we by which i mean we have viable bounds there's a certain temperature range certain you know hydration oxygenation etc etc you have to stay within those bounds uh, and we have reflexes which make sure we do uh, and if those reflexes can't cope with something that's happened we die and that's it you know so the difference between conscious creatures and unconscious creatures is that when we're moving outside of our bounds we know it you know it's that's what feeling is it's like this is bad for me and it's bad for me in a particular way in other words this is too hotness and this is you know too too um, hungriness and this is too sleepiness and so on and what you do um in response uh you know saves lives <laughs> Uh, it's a, it's a, it saves your own life more important than anything else <laughs> yeah yeah well i mean i can't yeah it's it's the thing that is now when you're when you're talking about this um with the fact that like all all creatures you know they have needs um feelings reflexes um and a lot of these things are it seems at least to me you can correct me if i've misinterpreted this the, those are the those are the basis of what forms the source of consciousness is the, the first like the need and then the the awareness of for, need yeah the, the yeah they and then yeah eventually the awareness yeah exactly okay so i'm not yeah. quite i'm i'm, I'm kind of on the right track here <laughs> um 
So the the thing that then I wonder, and it was only an offhand comment in the book that you made when you saw, talked about some some people thinking that the internet was conscious, um, and I, I kind of thought about that for a while, and I was like, I don't buy that. Um, but then when you're talking about this, I wonder if it's ever possible for us to have an artificial intelligence that's actually conscious, because unless we were to program needs and and drives into it in 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 a way is that is that a is that a, is that an odd suggestion no no not at all so so let's just go back to when you said you know you're not sure if you're defining it quite correctly it's it's so important to me at least i just want to make sure that that that, that uh, our audience knows i'm not saying that everything that's alive has feelings i'm saying everything that's alive has needs uh, and we have automatic ways of meeting those needs. Those are called reflexes. Feelings are a evolutionary adaptation over and above that to where the animal becomes aware of its needs so it can judge how am I doing? This is what makes choice possible. And as you said, creativity and all of that, the flexibility that comes with that. So that's, that's uh, not all living things. Uh, it's living things which uh, uh, all living things have needs I'm talking about living things that are able to register their own needs and monitor how they're doing. That's the thing. Now uh, you say about the internet. So some people say consciousness is just information processing, you know, and the more complex the information and the more integrated the information processing is, you know, uh, then eventually it becomes conscious. Well, first of all, I'm not entirely sure why it should suddenly become conscious, <laughs> but um, there are, uh, my point in my book was that there are, many systems that process extremely complex information and highly integrated, uh, like the internet. Um, and yet, you know, who would claim in their right mind that the internet is conscious just because it's doing all this information processing? Uh, so for me, it's not about how complex the information is. It has, as you correctly said, to do with, do you have needs? Uh, do you need to survive? You know, do you have skin in the game? Do you give a damn? Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, and and uh, you know, feelings arise out of that. It's an extended form of monitoring your own needs. So then you ask the question, uh, is, it there, is it then conceivable uh, that there could ever be an artificial form of consciousness? And I, I, I may surprise our audience uh, by answering uh, that I think it is conceivable. I think that there's no there's no good reason why it should not be possible uh, to uh, to engineer uh, an artificial uh, uh, system which its whole purpose its whole its raison d'etre all that it's there all that it's designed to do is to keep on existing. Um, then you know all of its behaviors are. Uh, predicated on you know I, I, I got to keep I got to do whatever it takes. So then you will have needs, like I need um, an energy source. You know, I need not to suffer tissue damage or it wouldn't be tissue, but the, the, the actual, you know, the entity that I am um, must avoid getting broken. Um, and, you know, it mustn't overheat and, you know, it mustn't fall into water. And, you know, these will be needs. Um, so, if, so if you have an, an artificial system, which like us, living things has needs uh, and then it has the ability to monitor its own needs and it has a sufficient range of them where they have to be qualitatively distinguished from each other and you show that this thing is capable 
of of making of surviving in novel unpredicted environments uh, by monitoring how its needs are. I think it is conceivable uh, that such a system would have, with the emphasis on this word, artificial consciousness. In other words, there would be something. There would be something like too hotness uh, of the system, or, or or running out of energyness, you know, of that system, which would be a very far cry from what we, not only humans, but we living things, you know, how we experience our own bodily states. This would be the artificial equivalent of this, but I think it is not inconceivable as long as we allow ourselves to take the leap, which is where our conversation began, to take the leap of seeing it from the point of view of the of that robot. If you were that robot and you were registering all these things and your very survival depended on it, and there's a range of them and they're qualitatively different, and on the basis of how those things are going. It's able to come up with choices, um, you know, and and make novel, come up with novel solutions all of its own. I think it's only prejudice that that, that would make us say it's never possible that that there would be some kind of artificial uh, what it is like to be such a robot. Mm. But now I'm afraid, uh, 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 having uh, put a lot of effort into trying to be as persuasive as I can to. Our audience, I think, maybe now they've concluded I'm a nutter. But I, <laughs> I, 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 I honestly do think it's it's conceivable, uh, it's possible, uh, it's probably even imminent. Uh, you know, given what's going on in in, in the technological world. Mm. Yeah, because I guess it becomes. It, I I don't think people are going to think you're crazy. Trust me, I've had way crazier people on this show. <laughs> um, the um, but I guess it's like. It then becomes a function of, I guess, maybe people's like conception of it as information processing is the is they they're conceiving that at a certain level that a computer could theoretically make a choice based on a sufficient number of inputs. Like if you had that, it would be weighing up certain things. Like obviously, still based on whatever the, the, the algorithms are that, that have gone into to building um, whatever neural network or, or whatever they, they end up, you know, creating or computer program or, uh, yeah, there's a few ways you can go about it. But um, it seems to me that then if that had, it would have a choice, it would have choices. And at that point would like, could you potentially consider it conscious Look, um, all I can do is tell you uh, how what I think, uh, which is based uh, on the sort of reasoning that I've that I've summarised for you. Uh, you I'm not I'm not going to exclude. I'm not. I I can't dogmatically say no. That's not possible because of blah blah blah. But I can tell you why I what what my own um, um, uh, line of reasoning would be. Um, So the first thing about the mind. Is that it's subjective. In other words, you know, you, it's about your own state. So if I program something in, and I say, when that happens, do this. When that happens, do that. When this happens, make a choice. Um, it's, it, it lacks that first starting point, which is that it's about me. It's about my state. Um, so, so uh, I, I would be skeptical about anything that's programmed like that. Uh, you know, because it lacks that starting point of. of of the consciousness for me, first and foremost, is the subjective state of the system. It's the, the system's registering of its own state. 
Secondly, it has valence, by which I mean goodness and badness. And that has to be good and bad for the system. Because remember, the first point is it's about its own state. The second thing is it's good or bad. It's good or bad things about its own state. Mm. So, um, again, you know, you can easily say big numbers are bad, small numbers are good. Just program them into the computer. The computer always heads for big numbers. But that's you who's just programmed that in. There's, There's no reason to believe that that's something about the computer monitoring its own state and giving a damn about its own state, you know? Mm. So that would be my second criterion. My third would be that there have to be a range of different needs um, and that they have to, they have to be met in their own right, by which I mean, you can't just add them up as total need. They can't be a single common denominator. We call that, we call that a continuous variable, which is just a quantity. Um, But But categorical variables are qualitatively distinct from each other, as are our needs. And and the crucial issue here is that you can't say I've got three out of 10 uh, of hunger and seven out of 10 of sleepiness. uh, Therefore, I've got 10 out of 20 of total needs, so I'll just sleep. Uh, If you do that, you'll die. You have to eat and you have to sleep. So these these are intrinsically categorical things. Um, and, and categorical variables are qualitatively distinct from each other. So that would be my third criterion. Firstly, it has to be about its own state. Secondly, it has to be good or bad for it. Uh, and then thirdly, there has to be a, 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 a categorical uh, differentiation between the different needs that constitute its own viable states so that they have to have a qualitative difference. Uh, on, if those three criteria are met, uh, and it then shows choice, which governs its own survival uh, in relation to its own intrinsically uh, subjective and inherently qualitatively distinctive need states. I would start saying, well, you know, that just is what we mean by a feeling. Mm. Uh, and although it's very different from mine, um, that is the subjective state, uh, the experiential state of that robot. I would be willing to concede that certainly at the very least as a possibility. I don't see why it would have to be ruled out of court. Mm. Um, But I said uh, earlier, and I'll say it again, it requires us to take the viewpoint of the the artificial uh, agent. And that's a giant leap. Mm. Scientists don't like subjectivity. (laughs) They want to be able to say from the outside, show me the consciousness. Mm. And uh, that is, that's a really, really... uh, that's the shibboleth uh, the, uh, in the end, yeah. sadly. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's uh, it's actually, it's interesting how it, it I, I, some, in, in a way I find it easier to conceptualize it as a, as a, as a robot or as a computer and to better understand like what it is that we're saying is at the source of, of consciousness, which is weird. Like once, once I've separated it from a, a being, and it's just a computer. I find it much, you know, to quantify what what like the the steps are, what the things are that are involved. Um, so um, I I know yeah. I've taken up uh, quite a lot of your time. So I've got- oh, I, I've enjoyed it very much. I want to squeeze in one last sentence in relation to what you just said. You know, there's a very long tradition of this in philosophy and in medicine um, that ultimately the body is a machine. You know, so you say, well, when I put it into mechanistic terms, then you can understand it better because there's, you know, it takes out this sort of being thing. But, you know, really, ultimately, uh, that's uh, we are machines and we are subjects 
uh, we are the being of these machines and uh, we, we, we just have to get our head around a new way of thinking about it about it all mm. but i've enjoyed talking to you very much thank you yeah not a problem um actually yuval noah harari talks about that a lot he talks about how um people could be conceptualized as algorithms um very complicated algorithms but algorithms at that um so yeah. i have one one last like you can you can take as long or as short uh, an answer and um for you here because it's not 100 percent really related to your book but it is a little bit so basically uh, i was wondering reading through this is like do psychedelics alter people's consciousness or is it just altering our experience or our brain chemistry Oh, well, that's easy to answer. It's both. I mean, you know, it's uh, as it as indeed applies to everything that uh, when I said that uh, you are a machine and you are the being of that machine, I mean, that's so, you know, every every alteration in your subjective experience has a physiological correlate. You know, look at it from the outside uh, you'll see a change in the way that your uh, receptors uh, are being stimulated by neurotransmitters. Look at it from the inside, you know, you're having a weird experience. Um, and uh, so, yes, psychedelics, uh, absolutely, the, by definition, psychedelics change your, your, your state of consciousness. That's what the word means. Um, and we know a great deal about how they do that in, in, in terms of, uh, you know, what's going on uh, neurologically. Psychedelics mostly act on cortical mechanisms, by the way. Uh, unlike most psychiatric drugs, you know, the psychopharmacological agents, they mostly act on that, that reticular activating system that I was talking about earlier. So they're both mind-altering, uh, but, but the, the, psycho, the psychiatric drugs, the psychopharmacological agents are more affect-altering, mood-altering, emotion-altering. Uh, although, you know, most psychedelics certainly have very interesting and, 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 and sometimes uh, unpleasant, but you know, mostly pleasant uh, 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 affective uh, uh, aspects too. There's a whole lot of cognitive stuff that happens. You know, the alteration of the sense of time and perception, and you know, and whatnot. Uh, that that doesn't happen with with psychopharmacological drugs because they're not they're not acting on cortex so much as on the brainstem. They're acting on the affect systems, not on the representational systems. Okay, well, um, I want to thank you again for your time. Um, everyone, uh, you can check out Mark's book, The Hidden Spring, uh, A Journey to the Source of Consciousness. I'll, I'll put links for, for that and um, for your Twitter um, and, yeah, all related things that I can find in the description below. So um, thank you very much. Uh, it's, been, it's been a pleasure. For well, me too, Josh. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast. If you want to leave us a comment, that would be awesome. Please like, share, subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for listening.